Hey, I'm Jesse. Let's have a devotion. We are continuing through the book of Isaiah. We're about to see at last the comeuppance against the Assyrians and Sennacherib, or Sennacherib, depending on how you pronounce it. Isaiah 37, 36 to 38. Then the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. When the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies. So King Sennacherib of Assyria broke camp and left. He returned home and lived in Nineveh. All right, some time goes by. One day, while he was worshiping in the temple of his god, Nisroch, his sons, Adramalech and Sharazer, struck him down with the sword and escaped to the land of Ararat. Then his son, Esarhaddon, became king in his place. Behold the power of King Hezekiah's God and the impotence of Sennacherib's or Sennacherib's multiple gods, whom he was faithfully, evidently worshiping. He came and threatened the people of God. The Lord spoke directly to him and the Lord spoke to Hezekiah. You got to admire Hezekiah's willingness to literally lay out the threatening letter before God and go before him and then invite God to glorify himself through these circumstances. In our, in our curriculum this week, we talk about that. We apply that, imitating the way that Hezekiah prayed about this situation. He just immediately laid it out before God, didn't bury his head in the sand. He articulated to God exactly what was going on, knowing that God knew full well what was happening and then invited God to glorify himself, not asking that he would be vindicated, see to it that we're not narcissistic in our prayers, but instead asking God to glorify himself. And now here at long last is the payoff. All right, let's start by zooming in and, and annotating the text. All right, here is the angel of the Lord. And not to, not to nitpick, but to hopefully illuminate, this phrase right here is used a couple of other times in Scripture. This is the only time that Isaiah uses this particular, this particular title. We've seen the term angel of the Lord in Exodus chapter 3, verse 2. Uh, we see it as well in Acts chapter 7, I believe, verse 30. And essentially, it's, it's almost indistinguishable between... Uh, an angel and then the Lord himself manifest on the earth, as it were. This is a direct representative of the Lord who goes out and strikes down. Now, we don't, we don't know the specifics of having been struck down. There are some, some commentators speculate that it could have been a mass disease that was inflicted upon the army. But wow, look at this, 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. Can you imagine? I mean, like the scope of that. It's, it's overwhelming to consider. There are, his, there are historical records in the secular realm as well that also describe this mass slaughter of Assyrians, but there's no account of the supernatural origins of it. And so it's speculated, well, like, what happened? Did they all just suddenly catch a violent disease all at once? While all of this, we have the, we have the behind the scenes look, uh, according to the word of God, it's the angel of the Lord that caused this to happen. So King Sennacherib, or Sennacherib of Assyria, broke camp and left. He returned home and lived in Nineveh. All right, now some time goes on here. When it says one day, uh, this goes on, this, 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 this comes about probably 20 years later. Uh, and, it, and it all kind of depends on the timeline between that one day 
and then what's meant by this word just then, right? Because we know that uh, we know that Sr. Haddon uh, succeeded his father to the throne uh, much later. That was about uh, was six eighty three B.C. is when the king died, um, and so if if not much time went by between this one day and uh, the succession of S.R. Haddon to the throne, then then there were there were 20 years to go by, uh, like right here, right, right between these two verses. So one day, while he was worshiping, to see that? Like he was in the process of worshiping his false gods, right? There's Nis, uh, his false god Nisrach, and by the way, I don't I don't know this for sure because I don't think that Molech worship was was common in Assyria, but I can't help but notice that that suffix Melech seems to seems to denote some sort of homage to to, to Molech. It could just be a coincidence. His son's names are Adramelech, which sounds like a prescription drug or a virus, <laughs> and Sherazer struck him down with the sword, and they escaped to the land of Ararat. All right now, if, if Ararat sounds familiar. That's because this is where Noah's Ark came to rest on Mount Ararat, all right? So if you've heard that before, I know if the, if Nineveh sounded familiar, all right, you see, did you see Nineveh here? If Nineveh sounded familiar, it's because that's where God called Jonah to go and preach. It's also the site of a mass revival of Gentiles in the Old Testament, all right? Possible hundreds of thousands of people who lived in that town, and they all exhibited incredible, beautiful mass repentance. But he has, uh, he has been uh, struck down by his own sons in the temple of his false god. So look at the, I mean, precipitous fall of Sennacherib or Sennacherib from a posture of seemingly indomitable like victory having taken out all the fortified cities, and now he's come to this place. And he had no concept. He had no, no way of knowing. He could not have imagined, he could not have fathomed that 185,000 of his soldiers would go down inexplicably. I mean, like he was, he and his emissary were talking smack against God. They were referring to all these false gods worshipped by the other cities that they had taken and saying that Yahweh would be no different. Do you see how that has something in common even with modern day worshipers of God? Wherein they take our God and they try to put him on a shelf with other gods and lesser gods, if lesser is really a word. And the, the, the people within the city of Jerusalem at the time would have been right to feel surrounded and outnumbered, completely outgunned. And yet God miraculously came through for his people. He's been doing this for thousands of years. I know that as ideologies evolve rapidly, you know, there's always this hope, this, this compulsion. I first heard it pinned by Sean Penn uh, to be on the right side of history, right? And it's, it's kind of claimed, uh, it's kind of claimed often by, uh, by, by wokeness and by liberals to say, like, you want to be on the right side of history. You don't, you don't want your children, your grandchildren to be embarrassed of your view on a given matter right now. And th th this is obviously presumptuous. What I think is that our Christian children are going to be proud of their Christian parents for sending by their convictions in a time where they were outnumbered, not surrounded by the army of Sinatra, but not that that makes much difference. I mean, given what God did to the army of 
Sinatrib or Sinacherib. We, I've always been outnumbered, and we will be outnumbered. This is not new. Christian, do not kowtow to the Assyrian army. Do not try to be ecumenical and compromise the truth of Scripture. Water down the gospel or add addenda onto the gospel as if God were, were somehow suddenly tolerant of the sins du jour in a given culture. Don't try to ingratiate yourself with the army of Sinachera because you don't want to be in that army when God lays waste to it as he did in this text. Do you see this? It's incredible. All right, 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians, they're all gone. All right, the next day, people got out and even remarked, like, look at all these dead bodies. Wow. Wow. You don't want to be standing next to that army when God pours out his wrath on it. So don't try to ingratiate yourself to an ideology that's completely contrary to the true gospel of Jesus Christ. All right, let your testimony be one that is on the Lord's side. And that is always, always, always the right side of history. The side of history to be on is God's side. Agreed? I'll see you tomorrow.